Take out your Bibles if you've got them, and if you don't, you should um, find them somewhere, and turn to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 through 21. Um, if you were here last week, we introduced um, this extremely important and extremely dense uh, passage, and we're going to be back in it here um, this morning. Uh, there's just there's so much in it um, that I thought there was no way we could do it justice in just one week. Um, so what we wanted to do last week, if you were here, we wanted to simply define our terms. Um, definitions are extremely important. Just saying a word or saying that you believe something, uh, it's not enough. Many people often have an entirely different understanding of that word and what you're saying. So think about it in terms of the word clean, right? The word clean, right? Many, many a minor dispute um, in the Shores household has been um, a result of a fundamentally different understanding of the definition of the word clean. Uh, I have a very loose understanding uh, of the definition of the word clean, and Melissa this is maybe a little more strict in her definition of that word, and she spent five years now trying to align my definition of that word more um, into the actual um, definition. So, right, she can ask Emma and I to clean up together, to make a room clean, and we do, right? Emma and I are a great team. We're on like the same intellectual wavelength. Uh, we have like the same understanding of what qualifies as clean. So we take three or four minutes, we throw some stuff around, um, we hide stuff, and we have fun with it, and done. We're, we're clean, right? And then what happens every time? Right? Melissa walks in, it does not actually qualify as clean. So she spends the next 30 minutes cleaning up our mess, and we run off and, and do our thing, right? That's just kind of how it works, right? To her, we're like the lepers, and she's like the Pharisee, and she declares our own work unclean, and she comes in and, and fixes it. So definitions matter, right? If we had the same understanding of the word clean, we'd, we'd be on the same page, um, but we do not. What you mean by a word um, may mean something completely different um, than what someone else means by that word. And this is the case with the main word that we're talking about these few weeks, this word justification. Right? We believe strongly um, in the doctrine of justification. But our Catholic friends next door would affirm just as strongly their belief in justification. But we mean two completely different things by that same word. Right? So you've got to define your terms. And that's what we did last week, and that's what we'll continue to do a little bit this week. Last week we looked at three critically important concepts that Paul introduces in this passage. We talked about righteousness, we talked about justification, and we talked about faith. Remember we saw that righteousness um, simply means to be right with. It is to be acceptable to. It's to be forgiven and on good terms with someone. So remember, you think of your righteousness as your resume. Right? If you want a job, you present your resume, which contains all of your experiences and skills and qualifications. And if you're good enough, you get the job. If you're not, you don't. Well, our righteousness is like our moral and spiritual resume. Well, the problem is that when we submit our resume to God, Paul tells us in Romans 3, none of us qualify. None of us has any righteousness. And that's where our second term, justification, comes in. Right? Through justification, remember this very important but subtle distinction, through justification, God doesn't make us clean and righteous, but He declares us to be clean and righteous. Right? To justify is not to change the fact of something, but it is to change the view of that something. And we have no righteousness. We have a terrible resume. Justification doesn't change that resume, but it changes God's view 
of that resume. When he justifies you, he looks at your record differently. Why? Solely because of Jesus Christ. Because of his work on your behalf. He represents you, and what he does, he does for you, and he does as you, in a sense. So we receive the benefit of Christ's work. It's like he slides his resume over to us. Now when God looks at our resume, he sees Christ. So he justifies us, he accepts us based on Jesus. And that brings us to the last word we discussed, which is faith. And that's one where you really need to make sure and define your terms. Because there's just a whole lot of confusion over the word faith. Remember, the common understanding in churches today, this is just recent, this isn't in history, we used to always get it right. But recently, now we understand that, that faith is the thing that we do, right? And God sees that, and then He responds by saving us. Wrong, right? That's, that's, that's not faith. That makes faith into a work. All right, a work is something that we do that brings about our salvation. But as we're going to see, Paul is clear that nothing we do brings about our salvation. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation is solely of God. So faith is the means by which he applies to us the benefits of Christ's work for us. So instead of us acting in faith and then God responding, Paul says that God acts first. He gives us grace. He regenerates us, brings us from death to life, and then we respond in faith. Faith is our response to God's initiative. Faith is a gift. We can't create it. We can't do faith unless God has first done a work in our hearts. Right, so those are the three terms that we've got to understand if we're going to get this passage. Right? Righteousness, justification, and faith. And that's what this passage is about. Right? This is about the most important thing in the world. Right? This passage is about how we are made right with God. Well, that's really, really important. How are we made right and acceptable to God? That's what we're going to talk about again. Christian, Catholic, Jew, Muslim, Hindu, Mormon, they're all ultimately trying to do the same thing. And we've all been trying to do the same thing ever since the garden. Remember, Adam and Eve sinned. They knew they sinned. Because remember what happened. All of a sudden they had a sense of something that they'd never had before. They felt fear. They felt shame. They felt guilt. And what did they do? They immediately took steps to remedy that shame and that guilt. Remember, they hid themselves and they covered themselves. And we've been hiding ourselves and covering ourselves in different ways ever since. Right? So in these, this passage, Paul is going to hold up the two ways that we can go about trying to deal with our guilt and our shame and our lack of righteousness. Or the uncleanness that we feel, as we talked about last week. Our failure to be right with God, right with ourselves, and right with the world. So we're all seeking justification. We're all seeking to be made right. And Paul is going to show us here in these verses the only way that we can get it. Justification by faith alone. This is the cardinal Christian doctrine. This is the gospel. If you don't understand this concept, you're not a Christian. Right? So we're just going to make sure that you do. We're going to keep kind of hammering this point and make sure we all get it. So let's first read the passage. Make sure we're kind of all on the same page here. Look down at Galatians chapter 2. We'll start in verse 15 and go to the end of the chapter. And I'll read it for you. This is the word of the Lord. Paul writes, We are ourselves, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. 
Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law no one will be justified. But if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. And pray with me uh, before we begin. Father, we come to you humbly. Uh, we come to you asking um, for you uh, to work in this time. Speak to our hearts. Bring this text to life. Father, I pray that you would do something in this room that I cannot do, um, that you would convince hearts, you would change hearts, you would grant faith and repentance. You would show us where we are trying to justify ourselves by our works. Father, you would just drive us to the cross. I pray that we would see the great and glorious doctrine of justification by faith. Uh, that you have done for us what we could never do for ourselves. You have rescued us and you have saved us in spite of ourselves. So I pray that we would better understand that in these few minutes and we would leave here um, better knowing and loving and worshiping you as a result. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, so remember context real quick. Right, Peter He's at it again. Right? Peter is like the king of shoving his foot in his mouth and doing the wrong thing at the wrong time. And you've got to remember that it was Peter's error that Paul is addressing in these verses. Right? The two greatest Christians in history, Peter and Paul, are, are at odds with each other. They're, they're fighting. Um, one is deadly wrong and the other is trying to um, correct him. They both know and believe the same thing, the same gospel, but Peter's actions are currently out of line with that Believe. He knows that Gentiles are saved by grace through faith exactly the same way as Jews are. But because of pressure from the outside, because of this, this group of, of false teachers, Peter has gotten scared and separated himself from the Gentiles and he refuses to eat with them. Remember back then Jews did not eat with Gentiles because Gentiles were ritually unclean. Right? And so by separating themselves from them, they would, they would remain clean and not catch their uncleanness or something. And so by Peter separating himself from the Gentiles, he's acting and implying that they were inferior, that they were second class. And listen, that'd be bad enough. That's, listen, that's just flat out racism. That's what it is. I'm not going to hang out with you because you're not like me. Um, you're not good enough for me. That's, that's racism. That's bad. But that's, that's not actually a big problem with Peter's actions. That would be the fact that by separating from the Gentiles, Peter was implying that they were not as justified or reconciled to God as he was. He was implying that there was something else that they as Gentiles needed to do to be worthy of his fellowship and thus by implication to be worthy of God's fellowship. So, oh, you guys clearly aren't good enough. You need to add something to God's work to be right with him and to be right with me. So Peter's actions are a blatant denial of the gospel. Now, I want you to notice something. It's difficult, it's impossible to say um, where exactly Paul stops talking to Peter and starts writing his letter again to the Galatians. Right? This, this is actually, it's important, kind of. 
Um, but notice, again, there's no punctuation. If you've ever just looked up an old Greek manuscript, right? Your Bibles weren't written in English. Uh, they were written in Greek 2,000 years ago. They had no spacing, just a whole bunch of letters in a row. It's hard to read. And there's no punctuation, right? So we don't have quotation marks and periods or things like that. But if you look at the ESV, you'll notice that there's quotation marks at the end of verse 14, which implies that Paul speaks this sentence to Peter, and then he turns to kind of apply that and address to um, the rest to the Galatians. But I don't think so. I think Paul is speaking all of this through verse 21 to Peter in public and the context of Peter's mistake. All of this is kind of him confronting Peter and speaking this to Peter. Because notice in 3 verse 1, he starts off, Oh foolish Galatians. Right? He talks to Peter and then he's finished in verse 1. Now he starts talking back to the Galatians. So this is all addressed to Peter. Notice how he starts in verse 15. We, we, we. Paul says to Peter in verse 15, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Well, what does that mean? Is Paul denying that he is a sinner? Of course not. Um, in, in 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul calls himself the chief of sinners. Paul knew that he was a sinner. Uh, so what is he doing? Well, he's borrowing, um, he's using one of their own terms. He's borrowing a common kind of Jewish pejorative term that they would use um, to refer to the Gentiles. Right? So in the South, right? We refer to people as negatively, like, oh, those Yankees up there, those, those Yankees, right? They use it as kind of a, a negative term. You know, we don't know what that means, by the way. We have no idea what Yankees means. I looked it up. We don't know. We don't know where it comes from. Um, this is interesting. But in the South, it's like a negative term. We're like, oh, those Yankees, right? That's how Gentiles would refer, Jews would refer to Gentiles, like, oh, those, those sinners, right? What do they mean is, well, they're outside of the covenant. They do not have the, the, the blessing of God's promises uh, and his law. So they are sinners. They are outside of the covenant. So Paul borrows that term and says, we are not Gentile sinners like them. And he's basically saying, listen, Paul, Peter, we're both Jews. You and me. We're both um, in the covenant. We've got the law. We're not outside of it like those Gentile sinners. Right? So that's, that's kind of what he is saying there. By birth, we are part of it. We're not sinners. And then in verse 16, he launches into the heart of his whole um, letter. Look at verse 16. Here's the heart of the gospel. Even though we're both Jews, even though we're not sinners, verse 16, even that, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So here are your two opposing ways to live. And these are the only two ways. Here are the only two ways that you can go about trying to get justified. The only possible way to try and deal um, with the shame and the guilt that we're all wrestling with deep down. Listen, even though you're not, maybe not even aware of it, we're good at hiding it from ourselves, right? We get all dressed up and look nice and look like we've got everything together. You don't. I don't. Um, we know that we don't. We're all wrestling with this guilt and this fear and this shame. And here are the two ways you can um, try to combat that. And the first way, he says, is this way of justification by works of the law. Now, we need to pause there. That's, what does that mean? Uh, there are two words that we should define. Works and law. Works is the Greek word ergon. And it basically just means an, an act or a deed or it's anything that is done. A work is anything that you do. And contextually, when Paul talks about works, he means anything that you do by which you seek to gain God's attention and bring about his favor. A work is anything that you do that you hope God sees and responds to. So when we think of good works, we almost always think of like these external 
kind of acts. We're like, oh, you know, we give money to the poor. That is a good work. We feed the hungry. That is a good work. Yes, of course, those are definitely good works. But it's a much broader term than that, right? A good work could be any attitude that you have. It could be a choice that you make. Don't just think external deeds. Good works includes every area of our thinking and doing before God, internal and external. One definition that I really like says that a work is a deed with a planned result. A work is a deed with a planned result. It's anything that we do in hopes of bringing about a certain end or result. And remember that in conjunction with our discussion of faith last week, right? When we treat faith as the thing that we do, which then God sees and responds to, we're making faith a work, right? Faith in this common understanding is a deed. It's the thing that we do with a planned result, which is our salvation, right? And I'm going to keep hammering this point because we've got to get faith right, right? We treat it as a work, but faith is not a work. A work is something that we do in hopes of bringing about some sort of desired end. Right? That's a work. What about law, though? What is, what is law? It's the Greek word namos, N-O-M-O-S. Um, and listen, this is one of the most difficult words in the entire Bible. Right? This word right here has caused more heartache to Bible interpreters and more disagreement than maybe any other word in the New Testament. Why? Because Paul uses this one word, law, to refer to a number of different things. Right? Sometimes he uses the same word, law, to refer to kind of just a general rule or a principle, the law, the law of love. Sometimes he uses it to refer to the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis through Deuteronomy. Sometimes he uses that same word to refer to the entire Mosaic law. Sometimes he uses that same word to refer to just the ceremonial aspects of that law, like the circumcision and the sacrifices. And it is, there's more and more. There's, there's, I can't remember the number. It's like 13 different ways he uses um, that one word. Right? So when he says that by works of the law no one is justified, how is he using the word law there? Well, it could be tempting to think, you know, he's just talking about, you know, circumcision on these ceremonial aspects of the law, right? That's, that's what he's fighting about with Peter. But that understanding wouldn't fit the extreme contrast that Paul is trying to draw. He's not just saying that no one will be justified by being circumcised or these other rituals. No, Paul is saying that no human effort to obey any law or attempt to get to God by our own goodness or anything that we do will justify us. No attempt by us to climb the ladder or to climb the stairs toward God will work. Paul is here in this verse drawing a hard and fast line in the stand, in the sand between works, which is any human will or effort, and faith, which is something entirely different than human effort. Right? So Paul says to Peter, says to the Galatians, and he says to us all, no one will ever be or can ever be justified by anything that they do. Works, will, effort, none of those words should even enter into the conversation when we're talking about justification. And as we quoted Luther last week saying, this article, justification by faith alone, is the article upon which the church stands. This is it. 
This is the heart of the gospel. This is what sets us apart from everyone else. And this is the difference between religion and gospel. And this is the difference between us and our friends across the street. Right? The, the Protestant split away from the Roman Catholic Church 500 years ago was primarily because of a disagreement over this key doctrine. I realized recently that I referenced the Reformation a lot. I talk about Martin Luther a lot. Um, but I assume that most of you have no idea who he is and what I'm talking about and why he is important. Um, a couple weeks ago, I caught Mike Oakes disparagingly speaking about church history and saying how boring um, it was and how uninteresting it was. I was personally offended, and I took that as a personal challenge. Right? So you all have Mike to thank for the next 10 minutes of this sermon. Right? I couldn't help it because right? I'm now convinced that you all need church history and I need to convince you why it's so interesting and why it's so important. Because guys, listen, we've got to understand where we come from. Right? We've got to understand our heritage. And listen, it's just fascinating as well. Plus, the Reformation is directly related to what we're talking about this morning because the Reformation was a fight over justification. Remember, to be justified simply means to be right with. Right? Justification is all about acceptance. And this man, Martin Luther, was a man who was absolutely obsessed with acceptance. And Luther, he was a Catholic German monk, right, in around the year 1500, so 500 years ago. And Luther, he was just an absolutely fascinating but, but tormented man. Right? Luke, uh, Luther was initially a lawyer. Right? He, he understood the law. He was a genius. Everyone recognized that he was one of the sharpest minds of his time. So he knew the law. He loved the law. And when he was brought into contact with God's law and started to understand God's holiness and God's righteousness, it almost absolutely destroyed him. Right? Because Luther was obsessed with this question of how can I, how can I, an unrighteous sinner, be in right relationship with a holy and righteous God? And his pursuit of this righteousness almost drove him mad. Right? So he, he became a monk. And I don't know if you know anything about monks. Um, it's really fascinating and it sounds absolutely miserable. I would have been the worst monk in the world. Uh, because being a monk, it's all about doing certain things to build up righteousness to please God and to earn his favor. And one of the best ways to do this, according to the monks, was just to make yourself miserable, right? The more miserable you were and the harder you tried and the more you suffered, the more merit you were building up um, with God. So Luther, for example, he had this special underwear. It was like terribly chafy, miserable under, like a whole body kind of underwear thing. It just constantly rubbed him and made him uncomfortable at all times. So he felt more holy when he was in pain. He would refuse blankets in the cold German winter and almost died on multiple, multiple occasions from freezing to death. He would go days and days at a time without food or drink, just trying to, to deal with his uncleanness, trying to deal with this unrighteous feeling that he had inside. Confession was really important back then. If you have a Catholic background, right, they still kind of do that in some cases, though it's kind of falling by the wayside, right? But if you didn't confess a sin, you're in trouble. And so Luther's conscience drove him to just kind of obsessive confession. He would spend six hours a day in the confession booth just exhausting his confessor, just tiny jots and tittles and, and tiny little things. He'd go through it all. After six hours, he, he would leave the confessional booth and he'd realize something that he forgot and he'd be right back in to feeling this guilt and this shame. Something hadn't been confessed. Something hadn't been taken care of. 
He would pray for hours upon hours of time. And then at the end, he'd be like, was I sincere enough? I know, it's, I've got to be sincere enough for it to count. And then he'd, then he'd be driven back into despair, right? Luther was obsessed with this lack of righteousness, right? He had a very keen sense that he didn't have it. And he was willing to do anything to get it. On one occasion, he got to go to Rome. And Rome was like the Disney World righteousness and gaining merit um, back then, right? Rome was just basically kind of like a theme park of rituals and relics and pilgrimages, right? So you would pay your money and you could go and do these certain different things. And as you did that, you were building up and you were accruing merit, right? The more you do, right, you're, you're, you're absolving more of your sin and you're getting closer to God, right? So the harder you work, the more money you spend, the better you're going to do, the more acceptable you'll be in God's eyes. All right, and Luther was like a kid in a candy shop in Rome. Like he went everywhere and did everything. Right? He even got to climb what is called the Scala Sancta. Did you guys go see this while you were there? The Scala Sancta? Right, and it, in Italian, this means, it just means the holy stairs, the Scala Sancta. It's still there today. You can still go see it. Right, and these stairs are supposedly the stairs that Jesus himself ascended in Jerusalem as he was climbing the steps on his last day to go be tried by Pilate. So someone in the 4th century supposedly went to Jerusalem, got the stairs, and transported them back to Rome, and now they're there for you to climb. It's ridiculous. It's a scam. It's not actually the stairs. They just made some stairs and said these are Jesus' stairs. They're not. But people are still climbing these stairs today. Right? Here's what they do. There are 28 marble steps. That's right? a good number of steps. And what you do is you, you get bare need and you climb up these steps on your hands and knees. You stop at every single step and you have to say another prayer. One pope a couple hundred years ago declared um, that you can get nine years out of purgatory for each step that you do. I did a little math. That's 252 years less in purgatory just for going up these stairs. So that's it's a pretty sweet deal. Um, you guys can get out of a lot of suffering just by climbing these steps. But so in the year 1511, Luther goes to these steps. Right? He, remember, he's in the middle of his this guilt, and he's trying desperately to do anything. He gets on his knees. He's weeping and sobbing. He stops at every step, praying. His knees are bloody. And it was there for the first time when he gets to the top of the stairs and looks back and sees everyone else doing it where the first seed of doubt is planted, where he thinks and feels what did I just do? Did I just accomplish anything? Because nothing felt any different afterwards. Right? Did I just do anything? What was the point of all that I just did? 300 years after Luther, Charles Dickens, the great um, author of A Christmas Carol and a number of other books, he went and visited the stairs and observed kind of the ritual and the people. And he wrote afterwards, he said, I never in my life saw anything at once so ridiculous and so unpleasant as this sight. Why people put themselves through such crazy things? Why are people going to such ridiculous lengths to, to, to do such things as this? It's because of our inborn and natural desire for justification. Right? We know deep down, if we're honest with ourselves, that something is wrong. We know that something is off 
and unclean and were desperate to do something about it. That's all Luther was doing. Right? He, he's no different than the rest of us. Right? We do it in different ways. We do it with our appearance and with our clothes and we do it with makeup and with our job and with our family. We're all trying to get it together and hide who we really are so we can put forward this kind of justified, acceptable front to other people. Here's who I actually am. Love me. Accept me. Um, I am good enough. Well, Luther's doing the exact same thing here. Um, with all these different crazy and weird rituals. He's just like us. He wrote once um, later on, he says, I was a good monk, and I kept the rule of my order so strictly that I may say if ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, I like that word, by his monkery, it was I. If I had kept on any longer, I should have killed myself with vigils and prayers and readings and other work. Right? Luther went to unimaginable lengths to justify himself by his works. And it was killing him and driving him crazy. The problem was, after years and years of this, he never felt any cleaner. He never felt any closer to God. And he never felt any more acceptable to himself, to others, and to the Lord. One more time, let's listen to how he describes it. He writes, Though I lived as a monk without reproach, said I never, I was perfect, I didn't fail, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I could not believe that he was appeased or pleased by my satisfaction. I did not love, yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners, and I secretly was angry with God. Later on, he writes uh, that before his salvation, the term, the righteousness of God, filled him with hate. Because he felt that nothing that he could do could please such a holy and a righteous God. He realized that if that was God's standard, and if we had to get to that standard, he had no hope. And so he began to hate this God and his righteousness. Nothing Luther could do was good enough. But then, one fateful night, everything changed when God did something and God intervened. Right? Luther was a slave to the Catholic Church's failure to understand the gospel. Right? Rome was doing the exact same thing that the false teachers in Galatia were doing. Right? They're adding something to Jesus. They're adding our effort to God's grace. Right? Of course, Catholics believe in Jesus and the importance of grace and faith. No one would deny that. But that's what makes the error so great and deceitful. It's the subtlety that is so dangerous. It's this tiny little shift, this tiny little addition that ultimately kills the gospel. It was through this book of Galatians and through the book of Romans that God finally opened Luther's eyes and set him free from this feeling of crippling um, shame and guilt. Right? Where Rome taught um, and Luther thought that, that God's righteousness was his perfect standard that he holds us to and expects us to get to, Luther, by grace, finally realized that the righteousness that Paul is talking about here in these letters was the righteousness of God that is also from God. It is the righteousness of God that is also from God. Yes, it's his righteousness, but the good news that they had completely missed was that he gives that righteousness to us. Right? We don't do it. Luther had proven time and time again that we can't do it no matter how hard we try, but the gospel and what Paul is so desperate to defend here in Galatians is that justification is God's work, not ours. God has to give to us what we do not have and what we cannot earn. And once Luther realized this, he absolutely and fundamentally changed the world. 
We exist because of what God did uh, in Luther's life 500 years ago. He began to loudly and boldly proclaim um, Paul's gospel of justification by grace alone, through faith alone. No works. In other words, nothing that we do. He knew better than anyone else that all those efforts and works are worthless. It's all God and what he does. Now, initially, Luther... He didn't desire to start a reformation or to split from the Catholic Church. His desire was to fix the church and cleanse the church um, from the inside. But the church wouldn't happen. Uh, Luther and his teaching became so big and so troublesome and so widespread that they eventually had to call a council um, to respond. And this was referred to as the Council of Trent um, a few years um, after Luther. And in the Council of Trent, they're, they're dealing with a lot of things, but they're primarily dealing with this, this doctrine of justification. And they're trying to respond to Luther's teaching. This is still a th official doctrine of the Catholic Church. Right? This is infallible. It's inspired according to them. This is it. This is still what they believe, written in the year 1545. And listen to what they say about justification in response to Luther's teaching. If anyone says that by faith alone the sinful is justified, meaning that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to obtain justification, and that it is in no way necessary that he be prepared and disposed by um, his own will, let him be anathema. Then they say again, if anyone says that the justice received is not preserved and increased by God through good works, but that those works are merely the fruit and signs of justification, let him be anathema. You know what anathema means, right? It means damned. It means let him be damned. Let him be cursed. Let him be cut off and separated from God. So I have now officially been damned twice by the Catholic Church because these are the two things that I teach repeatedly and constantly. Right? Notice what they say. They condemn the belief that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to obtain the grace of justification. Isn't that what this book is about? Isn't that the whole point of the book of Galatians? The theme of the book is that justification is not by works or anything that we do, but it is solely, solely by faith alone. Right? Just, I don't think they read the book of Galatians. It must not be in that, in that Bible. Right? This is Paul's point. Nothing but faith is required. Nothing that we do cooperates in our justification. It's not by works. It's not by anything that we do. God saves and justifies sinners. It's His work and not ours. Nothing is required of us to cooperate in it. Anything else is salvation by works. And that's the very thing that Paul has just said is so wrong. A theologian I like, his name is James White. Listen to what he writes. He says, Work salvation would refer to the concept that human works are necessary for salvation. That is, that the work of Christ in and of itself, without human works, actually saves no one at all. If it is asserted that Christ's work is dependent on the actions of humankind and that God has simply made a way of salvation available that is still dependent on us, this is works salvation. That is what the Catholic Church teaches. Christ's work by itself is not enough. We've got to add our work. But listen, let me stop beating up on Catholics and let me start beating up on us because we, we tend to do the exact same thing without even knowing it. Notice this line from White. He says, 
If it is asserted that Christ's work is dependent on the actions of man and that God has simply made a way of salvation available that is still dependent on us, this is works salvation. That's what we talked about last week, right? Is that not exactly what we do with faith? We make Christ's work in our hearts dependent on our action, on our choice. Most churches will teach that Jesus just died for everyone and he just kind of stepped back and he made the way open and available and said, here you guys go, do with that what you want. It's, it's rest, the rest is up to you. It's dependent on your actions. But that is salvation by works. It makes justification dependent on us and not God. Thus, these many churches out there are, are not a lot different than Rome when they argue that God simply made the way. Now it's up to you. It's just your choice. Uh, it's dependent on us. That's not the gospel. That's works righteousness. But forget that point for now. It's extremely important, and I'm going to keep hammering it. But it's definitely a finer theological point that, that most of us aren't wrestling with. But we are all wrestling with this need for justification. And we are all much more like Rome and more like Luther here um, than we would like to admit. We need justification. We crave acceptance. And we are all acting in some way or another as if that acceptance is based on ourselves and what we do. Guys, I'm so desperate to help you see this. You are doing this. You are living in some way as if your standing with God is based on what you do and how well you do it. You've got to be aware first that you're doing it, and then you've got to know where you are doing it. We are all naturally hardwired for works righteousness. We all feel in some way that what we do determines how God feels about us. But if that's how you're going to live, it's going to cripple you because you're never going to be good enough. So when we think like this and then we fail, right, as we inevitably do, it's going to drive you into despair. How are you trying to justify yourself? How are you trying to prove your worthiness and make yourself acceptable? Right? Some of you are trying to do it with your jobs. Right? That's why you work um, nonstop. That's why you're obsessed um, with your job, because your identity is wrapped up in your work. Some of you do it with your family, especially with your, your children. Right? I struggle with this one, right? We feel better about ourselves when our family looks good and clean and together, right? We feel worse about ourselves when you see our child pitching a fit, like, oh, right, this looks bad on me, right? Because again, in some sense, my identity is wrapped up in my children, right? Some of you are trying to justify yourselves with your morality. You're, you're trying to be good enough and to follow certain rules and not do certain things because deep down, if you're honest with yourself, you believe that you've got to be good enough for God. What is the work? What is the thing that you are doing to try and justify yourself? What are you trying to add to God's grace? Because it is so important that you know what that thing is. Guys, listen, I, I do it too. I'm not exempt from this as the pastor. Right? I, I so want this to be a place where we feel comfortable and open enough to talk about our own sinfulness and weakness that I feel like I've got to model that for you from the pulpit, right? So I want to give you a peek behind the curtain to hopefully help you to motivate, uh, help motivate you to figure out how you're trying to justify yourself. Because listen, look at me. Here I am. I'm the pastor. I'm up here preaching about justification by faith alone. And I often do the very thing that I'm preaching against. And if you are here last week, let's be honest, I preached a pretty good sermon. I'm not, not trying to gloat. I'm really, I promise, I'm not trying to be arrogant. I'm not, I promise. I'm trying to do the exact opposite. Just bear with me, right? It was, it was a pretty good sermon. I felt 
that it was a pretty good sermon. Um, a number of you came afterwards and affirmed to me that it was a good sermon. Listen, that's a good thing. I mean, we want good sermons. I'm not trying to toot my horn. I'm doing the exact opposite, right? So I know I preached a pretty good sermon. You guys agreed with me. A bunch of you told me. And you know what that did to me on Monday morning? It absolutely crippled me. I sat at my computer with a blank word document, and I stared at it and thought, what now? How am I going to prove myself? How am I going to match last week? What am I going to do to do as good of a job as I did last week? I felt this unusual weight to perform, to match that same standard, to impress myself and to impress you guys. But what am I doing? I'm attempting to justify myself by my works. I am demonstrating that I, too, crave acceptance. I crave your acceptance. I crave acceptance in my own eyes. I crave God's acceptance. And then and I'm proving that I think that I can earn that acceptance to some degree by how well I perform up here. Right? I want to prove myself by my work. And guys, listen, when I do that, why honestly, I am no better than Peter. I am denying the gospel by my actions. I've done the same thing that Peter has done. I am, in effect, saying to God that what he has done in Christ for me is not enough. No, sorry, Christ. I, I've got to add something. I've got to justify myself by how well I can preach just a little bit more. Then I'll be more acceptable. Then I'll be closer to you. So in preaching, I have a tendency to do the very thing that I am preaching against. Why? Because of my tendency to forget the gospel. Right? That I am fully and completely accepted by God, justified, righteous, clean, whatever you want to call it, based solely on the work of Christ for me. Nothing that I do or don't do can take away at all from that. You cannot be more or less justified. It has nothing to do with me, right? But we are so prone to justification by works that we constantly need to be reminded of the gospel. I constantly need to be reminded of the gospel. I need to be preaching that gospel to myself every day. This gospel that is about him and not about me. You are trying in some way to justify yourself by your works. Are you at least aware of that? Do you know how you're doing it? Have you confessed that to God and repented and asked for His grace in that area? But why? Why is this so important? Look, look at verse 18. Look down. Look at what Paul says. He says, if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. What does that mean? What has been torn down? The law has been torn down. We're going to talk about that a lot in the coming weeks and what that means exactly. So we'll come back to that. But the law, he means any attempt on our part to work our way to God, any attempt to climb those steps like Luther, that ladder to get closer and closer to God, any attempt to try to justify ourselves is as if we were trying to rebuild the law. And why is that so bad? Verse 21. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no reason. Guys, when we try and justify ourselves by what we do, we are in effect saying to Christ, not enough. We make his death void. We make his death worthless. We demote his work and we elevate our work and then we put ourselves in the place that only God belongs. That's why Paul is so angry. That's why Paul is so desperate to defend this gospel. Anything else brings only dishonor to God and only death to us. Works don't 
work, right? Justification is either by grace, through faith, or there is no justification, right? We cannot be good enough. Our only hope is God's mercy, that Christ has been good enough for us, that his record is now counted as our record. How? Verse 20, like we looked at last week, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. When Christ died, he died for you, and he died as you. And when he died, you died with him. You have died to the law. You have died to sin, to death, to the world, to yourself. And now you live to God. And not only that, but Christ lives in you. He begins to empower you uh, to live like we should and to begin to do these good works. Right? That's the order. And that order is so critically important. Right? God gives to us salvation by grace through faith, which then leads to good works. That's the gospel. Everything else flips the order. It says God gives a little bit of grace, we add a little bit of faith, we sprinkle a little bit of works, and then we gain salvation. That's what everyone else in the world is trying to do, and there's no hope in it. Right? The, the very heart of the gospel, the, the article upon which we stand or fall, is this great doctrine of justification by faith alone. We are made right. We are accepted. We are clean only because of God and what He has done for us and given to us through the work of Christ on our behalf. He works. We rest. He labors. We receive. That is the good news. That is what is so unique about the gospel. No, all religions aren't the same. All other religions are the same. But this is fundamentally unique. It is only here that we find God working and sacrificing and dying so that man can live. Instead of man working and sacrificing and dying so that he can earn his way to God. Guys, know this gospel. Love this gospel. Live this gospel. Ask God to show you where you're not. Ask for his forgiveness and rest confidently in the truth that you have it because it doesn't depend on you. It depends on him. And he is supremely merciful and faithful and good. That is your only hope for acceptance. That is your only hope for freedom um, from the guilt and the shame and the insecurity that we all feel, knowing that you are already and completely loved and accepted because of Jesus Christ. That is the gospel. That's how we can begin to change, by learning, loving, and living this great and glorious truth. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, meaning it is all His, and it is all His work, and He graciously and mercifully gives it to us, right? All we do is benefit from His work and His action and His goodness, right? That is good news. Right, let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, we confess that we are so quick uh, um, to change that gospel, to run to and cling um, and chase after other gospels, um, or gospels that uh, we try to contribute to, gospels in which our righteousness is something that we um, build up and offer to you so that you will accept us. Father, I thank you um, for allowing us to feel um, so desperately um, weak, and I thank you for allowing 
that you are um, good and, and powerful enough that you can even use sin in our lives to bring about our good. And that good is showing us, as you did with Luther, that there is nothing that we can do. There's nothing that we can add. We can never um, be good enough. So, Father, I pray that we would feel the weight of that. Father, that if we don't know you, that you would just drive that guilt um, into our hearts and this, this feeling that we fall short. But, Father, I pray that you would not leave it there, that you would then use that um, to, to set our sights on the things that are above. Father, to, to move our focus to the gospel and to the grace and this free offer of salvation, this, this offer of the gift of your righteousness, free relationship with you, based on nothing that we have done, but based solely on the work of Jesus Christ. Father, help us to understand that. Help me to better understand that. Um, Lord, Father, I can preach it. Father, help me live it. Um, Father, I pray that you would drive this truth into my heart and into the heart of everyone um, in here. Father, our standing with you um, cannot fluctuate because it is rooted and founded on the solid foundation of Jesus Christ. Father, and his relationship with you does not fluctuate. Father, I pray that we would find great comfort um, from that truth. And you would use that um, understanding, that knowledge of, of that truth, to Father, to unleash um, great joy in our lives. Um, Father, and to use us to do great things um, for you um, in this world. Father, we love you. Father, help us to love you better. And Father, we believe. Help our unbelief. Father, I pray for anyone in here um, who does not know you. Father, I can do nothing for them, but you can. Um, and I ask that you will. Father, do a work on our hearts. Father, bring us from death to life. Um, grant faith and repentance where it is needed. Father, I pray that we would leave here while I'm delighting in you and worshiping you um, for what you have done to rescue us from ourselves. Father, we thank you and we love you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.